This is Press Play, the podcast brought to you by News Media Works. My name is Mackenzie Scott. Phil Leake, the long-standing political cartoonist for The Australian, passed away last week, aged 61. The response was almost immediate. Acknowledgement of grief came from all sides of the political spectrum, from journalists to politicians alike, while News Corp planned a public memorial. This week, I had the chance to talk to a number of Bill's colleagues and friends, reminiscing on who he was. In this podcast, you'll hear from Nick Catter of the Menzies Institute, Pierce Ackerman, journalist and commentator at the Daily Telegraph, Warren Brown, cartoonist at the Daily Telegraph, and finally Campbell Reid, Director of Corporate Affairs at News Corp. He will also start off this podcast by describing Bill's contribution to the Australian and greater public debate. Bill brought to the Australian something that was an absolutely vital part of its mix in the Australian conversation, and that was the larrikin irreverence of the the quintessential Australian disregard for authority and that sort of poking the stick at anybody who uh, was, was pretending they were running the place. And so the Australians incredibly qualified and well-intentioned but serious commentary had that beautiful counterpoint and right until the, the, the very last thing he ever drew for the Australian, that beautiful counterpoint between the serious commentary and the completely irreverent and uh, and challenging um, take on, on the, the same thing that you had read with incredible sort of seriousness for 10 minutes beforehand, you were finding... Um, yourself laughing your head off when you saw Bill's take on it. And I think the the humour and that larrikin spirit that he added to the Australian was um, a huge part of the Australian's um, uh, success story. Next is Pierce Ackerman talking about Bill's character. B- Bill was the most modest, most, most gentle and unassuming character. He was certainly, uh, he was awed. I think by by works that his colleagues produced, he was always flattering. He was always complimentary of everybody around him. He certainly didn't expect to be the lightning rod uh, for this invective, this hate, this vitriol, that uh, this contumely that that um, he became a lightning rod for. I mean, he, here was a man who really was cut down in his prime, a, a person who was an inspiration to, you know, future cartoonists and artists. He was, he was just so accomplished, uh, and such a, and had and drew on such um, philosophical depths for his for his works. Whether that was his his writings, I mean, he used to agonise over his newspaper articles. He agonised over his cartoons, and he 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 tortured himself over his uh, uh, portraits and so on. One point that came up often was Bill's knowledge. Here is Nick Catter remembering his friend, the closet intellectual. It was great the way he liked to talk about his cartoon and throw around gags and ideas. That was one of the the joys of my job. Really, was this sort of half an hour sometimes with Bill just just joking and, and throwing up ideas about what we thought was funny from the day's news and he'd come back with something totally 
totally, totally outrageous. So it was a wonderful way to get to know him and the sort of character he was. And then when I left the Australian in 2013, we just carried on that relationship and he, he still would ring me uh, quite regularly uh, about cartoons. But we became, I think, closer on other levels too. We used to exchange books and ideas and we'd catch up at the weekends and talk about things because Bill in his later years became much, much more interested, I think, in the world of ideas. He always was, but he became very interested in in philosophy and political thought in a, in quite a deep way, which is why I always call him a closet intellectual, really. He didn't, he wasn't the sort of guy who struck you necessarily as an intellectual at first meeting because there was nothing pretentious or, or about him. He was very much, treat, you know, welcome everybody, enjoyed everybody's company. But quietly, he, he thought quite deeply about the world. And I think that's what uh, led him to, to get quite passionate about some of the ideas he later came to defend. This is something Piers can attest to. And we would we would launch into a broad-ranging conversation that might take anything from 15 minutes to half an hour, and it would be punctuated by his laughter um, and his his insights. He was he was a, one of the wittiest, uh, best-read people uh, that um, I've ever known. Um, we had outstanding luncheons. Uh, one of the most memorable was with Bill and his wife, Gung, uh, Rowan Dean, the editor of The Spectator, and his wife, Sarah, and Peter Weir and Wendy Weir, the, the film directors, within the last 12 months. And it was just such a free-flowing, open conversation in which all sorts of topics were discussed and everybody was just so appreciative of Bill's generosity of spirit and intellect. One of the first calls I got after the news of Bill's death last Friday was from from the Weirs uh, expressing their profound sorrow, but their the pleasure they had taken from having that experience with Bill. And uh, it's one I wish many, many other Australians would have been able to have and sadly we've been robbed of Bill in his prime. At this point it is important to mention the fall. In 2008 Bill was attempting to feed some birds on his balcony when he fell and sustained a serious head injury. Here is Nick Carter remembering that time. You know the big turning point in his life uh, was you know, certainly during the time I, I met him was, was his accident when he fell off a balcony and and uh, you know almost died if the truth were known he was in a coma and it was touch and go and we were thinking you know friends were gathering around in great concern thinking well we knew what happened to people in comas we knew what people that happened when people damaged their brains but a brain as complex as bills with so many sides to it you know he was visual he was creative he was amusing he was perceptive he could put words together he could observe little things that the rest of us couldn't we thought, you know, surely a brain as complex as Bill's cannot escape from this dreadful punishment it had taken intact. But as he came round and we realised it was the same old Bill, you know, he came out of the coma joking away. And as the, as the weeks turned into months, we realised that he still had every piece of his faculty left. But perhaps he was a little bit wiser through it and, and, and uh, he certainly gave up the drink. And, uh, and many people observed a more thoughtful Bill emerge after that really near-death experience and and his out of that came his relationship with his wonderful wife Gung 
So it was a much more stable period in his life in some ways and a much more creative period, although as it turned out, probably the most controversial period of his career. One person we haven't heard from yet is Warren Brown. Friends for over 30 years, the pair met while working on rival publications. This is Warren discussing their meeting. I met Bill, oh gee, it'd be pretty close to 30 years ago. Um, through the, the cartooning world, there used to be an organisation called the Black and White Artists, Artists Club. It's now called the Australian Cartoonists Association. And I met him, I was working as the cartoonist on the Daily Mirror, which was a, a tabloid newspaper in Sydney. It eventually sort of morphed into the Telegraph Mirror and then, you know, it sort of was absorbed completely by the Daily Telegraph. And Bill was working at the opposition at Fairfax. And he was really illustrating more than cartooning in those days. But I was very impressed with, you know, he had this very unique style, very bold, um, and had a phenomenal ability to, um, to create these, these, these incredible caricatures, which at the time I didn't know he was a portrait painter and he'd had classical training in Europe as a portrait painter. And of course in caricature and in, in, in cartooning there is a degree of portraiture involved in that. So, and I was sort of so impressed at the kinds of things he could do and he just sort of appeared from nowhere. He'd come back from Germany. Um, and, uh, you know, people were just singing his praises. And I met him at a function. And I remember saying to him, ah, you're more or less the, the modern-day Norman Lindsay, which he was very flattered by. And, um, and he paid me a compliment about the, the work that I was doing for the Daily Mirror. And I, I used to use this very strange kind of stuff called duo shade, which was an, an unusual kind of drawing board that developed lines and things on it. And he, so I remember him saying, oh, you're the master of the duo shade. But you don't see duo shade anymore because computers have taken it all over. But, and I was very flattered about that. And I think that was the first and last time we ever paid compliments to each other. For, so for the next 30 years, it was a round of uh, perpetual abuse. So that was the only time I can remember. Yeah, so that was a long time ago. Bonding over cryptic crosswords in a Sydney pub, the two formed a strong friendship. One thing they bonded over was a love of art. Bill was a classically trained portrait painter, with some of his artworks hanging in the National Portrait Gallery in Canberra and Parliament House. He has won multiple awards, but never won the Archibald Prize. Here is Warren talking about Bill's entries. As far as rivalry went, Bill and I were never, never particularly rivals in a cartooning sense. It, we admired well, it'd be fair to say we admired each other's work for different reasons. We're very different cartoonists and we worked in different ways. Um, and for Bill, um, cartooning was a kind of a, a very protracted and tortured kind of process. He could wake up in at 4am and be working on the cartoon one way or another all day long until you know his deadline in, in the evening. Whereas my cartoons were fairly instantaneous because I, I had worked on the Daily Mirror when um, there was tremendous rivalry between the Daily Mirror in Sydney and the Sydney Sun, the Fairfax competition. And cartoons, you just had to get it out as fast as you can because the story could change. There'd be, you know, could be four editions of the newspaper a day and things change. And, um, and so, um, but we, we both marvelled at the way that each other sort of worked. Um, and, uh, but as, as for the Archibald Prize, I actually, 
So Bill, I mean, and that's the, that's the thing too, is that Bill, Bill was a classically trained painter um, and, and his Archibald works were always wonderful. Like, you see them in print and they look great, but in, you know, in the canvas and in the paint, they are something to really behold. And I was lucky enough to be there when he was creating quite a few of those very famous uh, paintings for um, the Archibald. The Chow Hayes portrait was one. Um, the Bar um, uh, Celeste Patterson was another. The Robert Hughes one. Was, I was there when that was all happening. Um, and and each one of those paintings said something about Bill. Um, the Robert Hughes painting uh, was a very interesting one because it's a very dark painting. And people often say that's the painting he should have won the Archibald Prize with. And he was painting that at a very dark point in his life as his father had just died. And his, you know, his mum and dad lived in Adelaide and he, he had already painted a, a portrait of Robert Hughes. It looked quite similar. But he was driving back from Adelaide and he was in a very bad way, a very depressed way. And he stopped at Yass and he rang me from Yass and said, um, I've just had this kind of epiphany about how I'm going to paint Robert Hughes and it's going to be much darker and much bolder. And, and uh, in the end, he kind of resigned himself with it. And so the, the last few he did, like the Les Patterson and the Dame Edna, um, they were a caricature, which he knew he was never going to win it by then. So he just thought, I'll just, I'll just do these just to stick it up. And, and, um, and there, it was unfortunate in that um, there was a lot of, a lot of politics within the art world about Bill. And it was unfortunate, like the sad part about it was that he, I mean, and the thing is that Bill, he knew everybody in the, you know, in the real art world, you know, like he really did know them and they very much respected him. And, um, but when the Archibalds came in, some of the ones that would win, you'd just think, oh, how can that be, you know? Uh, and Bill had entered some, truly beautiful, beautiful paintings. And you know, he's good enough to hang, you know, Donald Bradman in the National Portrait Gallery, good enough to hang, you know, a portrait of the Prime Minister in, in Parliament House in Canberra. Certainly he's good enough to win the Archibald Prize. And he should have. Um, and, uh, and I suppose that's, I like, to, I, I like to think now I have something in common with Bill in that neither of us have won the Archibald Prize. <laughs> but he was a, a marginally better portrait painter than me, but um, yeah. One thing that came out of these interviews were memories. So many memories. From the funny to the completely idiotic, Bill seemed to make his presence known. Here is the first memory from Warren Brown. From the sounds of it, Bill was lucky to have made it as long as he did. You know, we became very firm friends and did a lot of crazy things together. I mean, it's a wonder, you know, it's a wonder that Bill lasted as long as he did. I nearly killed him twice. One time was that Bill and I had been um, approached to, uh, to be part of a pilot for a television series which was to be called Convict's Revenge and it was about going to be Bill and I, these two madcap cartoonists going to the UK and terrorising the UK locals and doing all that sort of thing. And uh, like, you know, Barry McKenzie, a pair of Barry McKenzie's with, you know, art line pens. And so we went out to this, um, this 
sort of, it was, it was called Britfest. It was a festival of all things British out in Penrith in Western Sydney. And the day was unlike any English day you could possibly, in any British day you can imagine. It was about 45 degrees and it was blindingly hot. Anyway, Bill and I had to put on chainmail armour and have this kind of mock sword fight with broadswords, but none of us had ever had experience with these things before. And while I'm sort of feigning, trying to hit him and things, I accidentally clobbered him over the head with a broadsword and <laughs> actually knocked him out. Um, so he was lucky to survive that. And the other time that I nearly killed him was um, uh, I had a World War II Jeep as my everyday car with no doors or anything like that. And we used to go herring around in this Jeep. And one day, um, as we were approaching sort of News Limited, um, I swung the Jeep around from Elizabeth Street into Kipak Street and Bill fell out of it and rolled into the oncoming traffic and then bounced out of the roll and landed in Peter Lamb's takeaway food shop on his feet, which was a very Olympic style thing. So, um, so never, I did my level best, but I never quite, never got, never quite killed him. But anyway, he's managed to do that himself, I think. Next up is Campbell Reid, remembering his first few weeks as editor of The Australian. When you take over as editor of any newspaper, but particularly I think if you take over from the as editor of the Australian, the the responsibility of it is is overwhelming, and um, and you sort of uh, sort of welcome to the hot zone. And I remember very early in my career um, as editor, somebody at the in our Canberra bureau rang me to inform me that a very rough cartoon featuring one international and one Australian politician um, in, a, in a very intimate act was circling in the corridors of Parliament and, um, and people were uh, ra ra rushing to control the damage of it. And, it, of course, the cartoon was um, a sketch that Bill had dashed off to, to amuse his fellow journos and um, it was uh, photocopied and distributed through Canberra and... Uh, that was sort of welcome to editorships um, with Bill Leakin as a member of your staff. So it was an extremely interesting day. Um, hilarious, but also terrifying. Next up, we'll hear from Warren again, telling about the time Bill was so trusting he allowed a criminal to stay in his house. Bill's life was like, or well, when I was with him anyway, seemed to be like, a, it was almost like a sitcom. Everything that happened, happened like an episode of something. That it was a beginning and then there was a middle, and then there was an uproarious end to it, and then the next adventure would start. So if his life was a boxed set of DVDs. He could get it out and write, well, let's watch the episode of this, and the Chopper Reed one was a great one. He was given a radio program on Radio National, believe it or not. Anyway, occasionally Bill would get people on to appear at that time on Radio National uh, to interview. And one day he came up to me and said, oh, guess who I've got on the program uh, tonight? I said, who? He said, Chopper Reed. And I went, why? He said, oh, he said, damn idiot. He said, Chopper's a great bloke. No one at the ABC wanted anything to do with it except Bill. So he was going to have Chopper on. And he said, oh, he said, oh, he's a great bloke. He said, look, he'll be on the program tonight. He said, when it's over at 10 o'clock, come and we'll have a beer with Chopper. I went, no, thanks. You're on your own with that. You can have Chopper. So it all happens. The next day, Bill I ran into Bill, or he comes up to me and he said, oh, you should have come and had a beer. You should have met Chopper. He was terrific, top bloke. You'd love him. You'd love him. I'm going, oh, yeah, excellent. You know, no, no thanks, no. And, he's, and he goes, Bill says, oh, I just want to ask you a favour. I said, what's that? He said, oh, he said, Chopper doesn't know Sydney real well. 
would you mind looking after Chopper until uh, I finish the radio program at 10? And I said, I'm not doing that. And he said, oh, look, mate, you did it like, you can, mate, you know, it's a phase, it was fun. I'm going, I don't want to do it, Bill, I don't want to do it. And he's going, mate, look, just please. He said, oh, just look after Chopper until I finish the program. I said, all right, I said, I'll look after him. I said, 10 o'clock, he's all yours, I'm out of there. And then finally, 10 o'clock rolls around. And then about 10.30, Bill shows up. And I said, I'm, I'm bundying off now, mate. You're, you, he, he's yours. So I said, he said, oh, thanks, mate. Thanks very much. You know. So left him. Next morning, I was to meet Bill with another portrait painter, Dave Naseby. And we would meet every once a week or something like that at this little cafe in Redfern. And we'd have coffee. And, and I, so I'm meeting Naseby and we're sitting there. And we're, Where's Bill anyway? Bill shuffles up the, up the street. And he's an absolute wreck. And his eyes are hanging out of his head. And his hair is all over the place. And, Oh, you know, he sits down and he gets a cigarette out. And I said, where's Chopper? And he said, oh, he, he's gone home. He had to get an early flight. I said, oh, how, how did it go last night? He, he said, he's a, what a great man. He's a great man, Chopper. Great man. I said, really, what did you do? What, I, I left you. He said, oh, well, we, we went up to King's Cross and we had a meal. That's how Bill is. Never have dinner. Have a meal. Have a meal. He said, oh, and then we, uh, what do we do? We, oh, we played the pokies. And, oh, yeah. And Bill said, oh, I won 800 bucks. I said, oh. Oh, it's good on you. That's terrific. 800 bucks. That's terrific. Oh, yeah. He said, oh, I don't know what we did. We came back to my place and we had a couple of beers. And, oh, we just went to bed and got up and Chopper, had, you know, he'd gone to get his early flight, you know. And I said, oh, I said, mate, well, you were bloody lucky you didn't murder you in your sleep, you know. And he said, oh, no, it's a great man. It's a great man. So we get up to go from the cafe and we don't have to go to pay. And Bill says, no, no, I'll get it. And he gets out his wallet and he opens up his wallet and it's stone empty. And Chopper had stolen all his 800 bucks while Bill slept. And he just goes, bloody Chopper, like this. And of course, Naseby and I, I had coffee coming out of my nostrils. So it was, um, you know, that was a, a wonderful Bill Leake story and $800 well spent just for that yarn, I reckon. He had a lot of great stories to tell about Bill. This time, he's recounting their 10-year prank war. If you aren't a fan of bodily fluids, I suggest you skip forward now to get you up to speed. One day in a Sydney pub, Warren returned from the bathroom to his mates in a glass of white wine. As he downed it, he realised that the wine wasn't white wine. It was warm and slightly yellow. I'm sure you're with me. You can read the full story in Warren's obituary in The Australian and I recommend that you do. Anyhow, on with the story. Um, the, the, the practical joke war went on and, it, and of course it didn't take long uh, until I could, you know, get my revenge on him, and, and revenge is often best served cold, but in this case it was served warm. Um, and what happened was, I mentioned before that Bill and I did this pilot for a television show. We were approached by a wonderful um, television producer called Michael Cordell, who's produced all sorts of things under the sun. And he thought, for some misguided reason, that Bill and I would be good television talent together. And so we met this, um, this fellow, uh, Michael Cordell in a pub, surprise, surprise, in Redfern. We were going to go and have dinner at a, a restaurant in Parramatta Road, and we met this, this Michael in the I met Michael in the, the uh, Woolpack Hotel in uh, in Redfern, and so I had an old Land Rover at that time. And we were going to go to this restaurant in the old Land Rover, and I said to Bill, "Come on, we're going." And Bill says, "Oh no, no, no!" He says, "I have to go to the Dunning," you know. And I said, "This is all you can see where this is all going." And I said, no, we're going, Michael and I are going. And I'm, you know, because I'm still steaming about what he did to me before. 
So oh, he's going, oh, make this one. So we get in the, in the Land Rover and there's three of us jammed in the, in the front of the Land Rover. We have like a bench seat and Michael Cordell is jammed in the middle and I'm driving along. And we get to the lights at Glebe Point Road and stop. And then Bill finds in a sort of little parcel shelf in the front of the car an old chocolate milk container. And he finds this old milk and he opens it up. And next minute we're looking down and Bill's filling this container up in the front of the car. And I'm going, what are you doing? He's going, oh, oh never mind, our man's got to go. He's got to go. And I'm going, what are you doing? And he's going, oh, anyway, Michael Cordell, of course, he's the great television. He's just absolutely in horror looking at what's going on. And then Bill goes, oh, oh, and he's actually filled the top of the container. And it has like a meniscus on it, like the surface tension is that full. And I'm just going, oh, bloody hell, you know. And so I thought, buggy you. And the lights turn green. And of course, so I just get the clutch in the car and start hitting the clutch. So the Land Rover kangaroos across the, uh, crosses the, 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 uh, the intersection. And Bill's going, oh, and this is, so all this urine, if you like, is flailing around inside the car. Michael Cordell is screaming and he's sitting on my lap. And Bill's there, and this is going everywhere. It was sort of like a, you know, it was like a Donald Trump's Moscow hotel room. You know, it was this wild thing. And then, um, and he builds just crawling me every other Sunday, and he's wringing wet. Anyway, get to the restaurant, and of course, Michael Cordell and I go in. Michael Cordell's in shock, and Bill appears through the door, and he's wringing wet, you know, like from head to foot. He spent most of the time, you know, sort of in a sort of limbo pose under the hand dryer in the, in the toilet. How it came to an end in the end, and it had to come to an end one way or another, otherwise someone was definitely going to lose an eye. I mean, bystanders thought it was amazing because there was, and we, Bill and I were kind of like psychological wrecks out of it because you're always frightened to open a drawer or open a door. Or, um, and so one Sunday I came into my office and I think, what's that smell? And I thought, ah, oh, it's a leak. Anyway, sure enough, didn't take long, under my desk, it's taped a packet of prawns. And I thought, how lame is this? You know, it's getting to the stage where we just have a pack, you know, the old sort of 21st birthday thing, you know. So I waited till he, um, he went home that night from the office and I broke into his office and he had on a shelf um, a video cassette tape, which, you know, we don't see them anymore, but, and I had a Phillips head screwdriver and I was able to undo one of the little screws that, and dismantled the tape and um, packed the tape solid with the prawns and put it back together and did all the screws up and put it back on his shelf. Now, I didn't say to Bill that, I'd actually found the prawns because he, because he, and so the next day he thought it'll take a couple of days for the smell to happen and then he'll, I'll be begging him to find, anyway, but he didn't know that they're now, you know, hidden inside a video cassette in his office. So I never said anything and Bill's getting, over the next few days, getting a bit nervy about, you know, like, getting, you know, like, well, where is it? And then all of a sudden his office started to smell and beyond it, you've got no idea. And he said nothing because he knew I'd done something and he'd been turning the office absolutely upside down trying to find where this thing was anyway that was some weeks and i went down to the office and it was absolutely like i can't describe to you what it was like you it, like the, the the fug that was in the air you could see the smell you could cut it with a chainsaw it was like your eyes would water <laughs> in the end it's just going i don't know i give up i give up i give up. where is it where is it and i said I said, uh, oh, oh, I'm going, what, what? Yeah, you, you bastard, I know, where, where is it, where is it, where is it? And he, I said, look, I'll only do this if you admit defeat, that you have lost the war. Oh, 
okay, I've lost, you won, you won, you won. I said, it's in that cassette. He couldn't believe it, that there was such an elaborate thing. And he rang Richard Feidler, who has the, you know, the program on conversations. He's a great mutual mate of ours. And he just rang Richard. Richard tells this great story where Bill was virtually in tears on the phone saying, the bastard's won, he's won. <laughs> I thought that was great. Finally, this is Nick Catter, reinforcing his friend's principles through a simple story. Um, to think of, pick out one little story is, is almost impossible. But I think the one thing that always sticks with me is that he was a true egalitarian. He treated everybody with equal respect. And I remember when the, the, the Mark Stein, the Canadian writer, very popular Canadian writer, was out here. Bill went along to one of his events and there was a huge queue to have the book signed at the end. Mark Stein sitting there signing endless books and he looked up and it was Bill Leake. And he said, Bill, he said, look, you didn't have to wait in the queue. You could have come and seen me afterwards or seen me before. You could have jumped the queue. And Bill said, no, mate, that's not the way we do it in Australia. And that was it. Deeply egalitarian, deeply knew his own place, quite humble, uh, but a, a, a truly great Australian. And I say that, you know, without any hesitation, a wonderful human being. And we've lost a very, very important man, I think. While she may not agree with Bill's politics, his cartoons, or what he published in The Australian, it is fair to say that the person he was is what should be remembered. Press Play is being brought to you by News Media Works. Catch up on previous episodes or subscribe by visiting iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or by visiting newsmediaworks.com.au. You can follow and get in contact with us on social media at News Media Works. My name is Mackenzie Scott. Thanks for listening.